It is an evening in high summer here in the heart of England. Nice thing. Good evening and welcome to another thrilling, fun-packed edition of Nice Things. Nice Things. Yes, the antidote to modern living with myself, Sir Michael Livesley, and joining me... Oh, God, do you know what I didn't think of one? Lady Lady Pauline... Uh, oh, f- f- Fairbottom. F- Fairbottom. Fairbottom. Lady Pauline Fairbottom. Fairbottom. And you're joining us for a special summer solstice edition. It's the summer solstice, Paul, the longest day of the year. I know you love long, sunny days. I absolutely despise a long, sunny day. Um, last uh, last week, of course, uh, I uh, we discussed how uh, you weren't in your tartan trousers. No. And you should have been in your tartan uh, lounge pants. Um, and how it's almost a crime. And yet here I am. And this is possibly going to mean that we've got an explicit podcast here because um, I'm, I'm just in gentleman's underwear from the waist yeah. down. So it's so hot. It's far too hot. It is far too hot. My mate, he used to claim that someone had moved the sun three foot away from his bedroom window. And I'm, I'm in on that today. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like... He always used to walk into my house. Go bless him, the late Paul McCann. He used to walk into my house all the time and he'd go, fucking hell, you had the eating on in here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he'd only walk like three houses up. But anyway, um, that's no, I think, story. Yeah, the longest day. No, um, uh, like you, I'm, I'm yes. rather a fan of, you know, the cold, crisp winter Ooh, evening. Yes. Much nicer. Much um, nicer. And also oh. because... I- I've got a dreadful sleep pattern, so I wake up most mornings by about half past four just to, just to worry about being awake. I think you I, come from a long line of dairy farmers. Do you think that's what it I is? I think what it is, it's a genetically handed down predisposition to early well, mornings. I do have that love of the archers, which has come from nowhere. You do, Well, I don't know. You, you're kind of from that world. <laughs> you know, that world. Yes, from agriculture. No, but from that sort of home counties and sort of like, you know, what's it, what's it Richie does in um, Filthy Rich and Cat Flap? Look after mum, God bless, and all that. <laughs> don't forget the dog. Um, <laughs> you, it is well, that nice world that you're from, isn't it? You are from that nice world. A I nice mean, things world. I think I've I think I've made a nice things world around you me. You have. Because yeah. the because the real world's not nice. It isn't, you know. That's the big <laughs> secret that we, we're trying to you know <laughs> keep keep out of the doors here. I, I often wonder with me though, and I don't think this is true of you, uh, but with me it's because I think predominantly because my birthday's in the winter. And so I associate that. But then maybe it's just the Christmas thing, isn't it, for all of us? Which I mean yeah, I mean, before you speak to that, sort of just to get down to what we're talking about, Christmas and the folklore side of it, and it is the summer solstice, you know. Um, and the one thing we're very obviously great big fans of is this this uh, all sort of culture that's been born out of the inherent superstition we seem to have for the countryside and the people who inhabit it in this country really <laughs> you know because we do whether that's the wicker man or whether that's the demons or the children of the stones or i'm sure you can think of more examples than that but there's, there's so, so many much. aren't there um and i think that 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 folk horror 
Um, yeah. It's such a lovely genre to explore. Um, there's a wonderful, a wonderful friend of mine, um, Dr. Adam Scovell, um, who's, who is worth looking for on Twitter or that sort of thing, um, who works in psychogeography. Um, with the idea of um, mood and feeling, often of oppression, being taken from uh, landscapes, be they, be they natural or be they designed and linear. Um, so he's done a lot of work with that sort of thing, producing short films. And you can see that being um, used in some wonderful films. In The Wicker Man, the, the landscape is oppressive. Mm. Um, in, there's a wonderful play for today called Robin Redbreast, um, with um, lovely, lovely Bernard Hepton, is it? Ah, there? lovely Bernard. It's absolutely wonderful. A young lady moves from London into somewhere in the country where they are a little bit strange and they're still mm. pagan. Um, and she ends up impregnated and they cut her phone off. But it's all being done. Sounds painful. With this, oh, yeah. But it's all being done in this lovely, lovely BBC way, you know, and, and filmed somewhere bleak. With, but with Bernard Hepburn wearing wonderful glasses. Well, Pender's Fen is like that as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. You know, um, so, so that's another example of that thing. You get an awful lot of those sort of uh, works around that time, um, sort of like throughout the 70s, I suppose, really. Pender's Fen um, being another red shift, being another... And you, mm. anything by Alan Garner, essentially, um, who wrote The Owl Service. Um, anything by him delves into this mystical Britain, but not in a tourist King Arthur wanky sort of a way. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if you've ever lived out in the countryside or, you know, spent a great deal of time out amongst the wilds, it it is quite a scary place if you're an urbanite, if you're, if you're a townie like sort of we are, I suppose. Mm. I mean, I grew up in a semi-rural place, which has since been sort of concreted over. But I think that there is that s sort of tendency for us to to be suspicious of things that are quite different to what we're used to. So like, when you're in the countryside and it goes dark, it's dark. Mm. You know, so Absolutely. there's that, isn't there? And I think in Children of the Stones, there's that whole, isn't it happy day, children? Happy day. Isn't that what uh, she says, happy day? Yeah, that's the greeting that um, I think in Children of the Stones, once you've uh, been taken under the influence of the circle, uh, mm. you become a happy dayer and you have emotion removed and it's replaced by mathematical logic. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And one of those wonderful children's series where the cast, they don't ham it up. They don't play it down. They play it just as a drama yeah. that happens to be on a children's uh, TV time. And suddenly you've got yeah. this quite sinister uh, piece filmed at Avebury, which is one of my favourite places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is that this sort of superstition, you can at least trace it back to when Caesar had that report written on Britannia. You can at least mm. trace this back to that. So obviously they came across Stonehenge. Now, I don't know. This is a complete and utter guess because we've no idea. I mean, when you think about how Western Europe's littered mm. with um, sacred stone sites, I'm sure that they weren't that completely bowled over by seeing this thing. But I don't think there's anything quite on the, on the sort of the same par as Stonehenge, really. Um, you know, to 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 fire the, that kind of curious suspicion and curiosity, and and that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because so much of it is based on curiosity and and superstition and what ifs. Mm. Because of course, the people who made these things didn't write anything down, or if they wrote it down, we haven't got it. Well, Nothing... if they wrote it down, the claim is that the Romans destroyed it. Well, yes, that's a claim. I mean, again, it, it is, it is, yeah. 
But we also have this other uh, thing that you said about Caesar, over he comes, and we end up with this report. And that is the only, only evidence that we have for anything like a wicker man in which people and animals Correct. And burn. Yes, yes. They may not have existed at all, but but it's there now. It's it's become part of almost the the British subculture, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's the argument, isn't there, that it was created as a piece of propaganda, almost the sort of dodgy dossier for the first century, <laughs> really, sort of to just go, you know, like they've got they've got weapons of mass wicker of mass destruction or something you know they, sort of, they said these people are absolutely savages and they must mm. be tamed one of the best bits of that that i like is the um description of the britons as people who got, just got drunk and had fights all the time yes. you know because it's great evidence of no matter how many times these islands have been invaded and the, no matter what the influx it's this sort of thing that permeates the topsoil it's like yeah you will like a rack and you will like yeah. a nice drink up in it you know so there's there's a sort of na- national character that's embedded beyond the flesh and blood that uh, inhabits the islands really yeah there is but it's interesting isn't it because you've got you've got these two then haven't you you've got the, you've got that stereotypical british thing um, and how we're viewed as being lurry and beery and all those sort of things. And then you've got this ethereal other world of folk horror and the children of the stones and the wicker man and, and some of the wonderful music. We were talking about um, Pentangle. The other oh, day. yeah. Yeah, yeah, with that, yeah. You know, that absolutely fits in with, that, with yeah. this whole uh, thing, doesn't it? Um, that, but that whole subculture and the two, to me, don't, go, don't seem to go hand in hand. I, I don't know. Do you feel that maybe you are one of the people who can embrace that or you are the other stereotype that we're more used to? Well, you always think, no matter which, which, which sort of one you, you're happy to ex, sort of mine for nice things as such, whichever one you are happy to sort of... I, feel, I, I think the question you're asking me is, am I more Bob Ferris or Terry Collier? And you're probably not. <laughs> No, but, but now I understand my own question. You've contextualised it beautifully. Yeah, because, you know, in the film, where, where they're demolishing the housing estate, aren't they? So that's sort of like the urban dwelling, the sort of Lurie Beer fella one, isn't it? And it's kind of like, you know, Terry is quite happy that they're demolishing the bloody thing, you know? And Bob is like, no, no, these streets have poetry. And what does he say? Something like um, sentimental... Uh, you know, working class view is reserved for football players and pop stars or something like, or something like that. And, and we have got, but I mean, we, we're standing on the shoulders of giants anyway in this country, aren't we? And we're totally, we weren't here when we had things like the Enclosure Act happen. No. Batteries Act and all these things whereby they just realized that they legally managed to kick everyone off the land and send them packing with handcarts to the to the new cities that were being built mm-hmm. in order to churn out goods. Um, I mean, we're living through, you know, as the government keeps telling us, the fourth industrial revolution. Um, so I don't know, I, I must have slept through the, the previous two between the first one. <laughs> um, you know, the great, the industrial revolution, if you just do a little bit of digging back in your family history, mm. you only need get back 150 to 200 years to find an ancestor who lived in sort of, you know, little wallop in nowhere, because they were turfed off the land and they were forced to move to the cities. That's the way it was. So I think that they brought with them, I mean, it's it's a fascinating thing to think about, really. I think that when you read things like, 
the Vicar of Wakefield or when you read any of those picaresque novels, mm. you see that the people in that was still much more superstitious than the people of the now, you know, because you've got people who are suspicious of the modern world. And it, it all, it's all the shock of the new, isn't it? And the fear of the old. I mean, the, the Tolkien builds on that in the Lord of the Rings, really. He's on about, um, you know, they're ripping the trees up, aren't they, to forge steel for the war. Mm. Um, but I mean, I think that it's born out of change, people not wanting things to change. And also, you know, as you correctly categorize, propaganda put around in order to, for whichever um, imperial power thought, well, we need a year zero here. So we need to decry all of that as, well, take your pick. If it was Christianity, they'd say it was all evil. You know, if it was this, the, the, so, so, you know. Um, well, yeah, I mean, right back to Henry VIII and his year zero, and then we've done it again, and we've done it again. Um, no, you're quite right. It's a strange thing, isn't it? That we, I, I don't know. I've, I've always got the feeling, maybe this is a controversial thing, uh, but I've always had the feeling that we've got this sort of like mongrel thing within us haven't we which i think is what makes us as a nation what we are really we've we've got so many different peculiar layers where we do have the the superstition and we do have that race memory almost of working the fields mm. but we also have the industrial side we've got all of these different attributes and rather than a national identity i, I think that there's more than one national identity really well, there is that, isn't there? I mean, and there's also the theory that I subscribe to that that memory is passed down, and you know the blood that is in your veins is is you know three hundred thousand years old or whatever you know age Homo sapiens is. You know, there's that theory that memory is passed down genetically and trauma is imprinted uh, genetically, um, and so you've got all those things that, you know, people were executed for believing in one God, then they were executed for believing in another. I mean, they're being executed now for not mm. believing in the right thing. And, and so, like I described, that guy whose uh, outfit is in the Liverpool Museum, you know, he carried the crucifix, but also the reticule. It's just like, oh, you never know, do you? Mm. So I think that there's a lot of superstition about sort of like, you know, we mustn't make the gods angry, really. There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's all that. And you move to the countryside and it's just... You know, there's that suspicion. I mean, the, the the other way of looking at it, the lovely way of looking at it, is things like the Shillingbury Tales, where everything's wonderful, you know. And Robin yes. Nedwell moves out there, and he's just, hey, I compose jingles for adverts, and I've got yeah. a lovely, gorgeous missus, and everything's ace. Which you know? is absolute perfection. It is. It? That's. I think that we both swap with Robin Nedwell in that. Oh, in a heartbeat. Was it Diane Keane, his missus, it, in it? It was, it was, yes. You know what I mean? Oh, that must have been an horrible job for him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, where you go? Yeah. Oh God, I've got to go in there and pretend I'm married to Diane Keane. I live in a, a smashing thatch cottage and I make a bundle of money off singing about mashed potato or whatever it is. Um, you know. But um the seventies, I think, is the last time that we had that at least at least we felt we had that connection to a rural past didn't we because if you ever go and try that rural thing mm. it's 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 really difficult <laughs> it is but i mean i've always i it's it's, it's it's difficult this one it goes back to my desire i think to run my own tv station when the, the apocalypse inevitably yes. comes. but when i have done that 
there's a wonderful, uh, wonderful memory I have of a very nice thing. Um, and I think this was in 1989. In fact, it was 1989 because um, I was a member of the Liverpool Astronomy uh, Society. Um, oh, yes, and um, I know it's 1989 because The Curse of Fenric Three is the only episode of Doctor Who I didn't see on its original transmission. I don't know what Doctor Who is. It sounds fascinating. It does, but we must avoid it a little. Well, but, I've never heard of it. Okay, we'll easily <laughs> avoid it. <laughs> but, um, so, that would be every Wednesday, and then a trip was organised to go to Todmorden, about what, 45, 50 miles mm. away, um, where uh, there's an observatory. And the observatory is uh, just a, well, it was just uh, a load of caravans. And then there's a camera obscura and there's a beautiful telescope. And it's in a valley, a little valley, not a big one at all. You, you can run up the sides of it, sort of side to side like that, um, which turns out that these are two burial mounds. Oh, and wow. they've put the observatory right in the middle. Um, and I went out there in 1989, I was about 14 and a half, uh, with a chum of mine, the same chum I went to Jodrell Bank with, and lots of these seemed to me very, very old and grown up astronomers, but they were all probably my age now or younger. Um, and then that was the first time I ever saw the arm of the Milky Way um, right. across the sky. Well, and isn't that interesting? memory. Isn't mm. that interesting that those burial mounds were in such a perfect spot for that? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that is why they will have been there. Mm. You know, oh, the positioning of sacred sites is always like that. I mean, Julian Cope, if you've read the book, The Modern Antiquarian, is, is the definitive work on, you know, uh, burial sites and stone circles around Britain. Yeah. Um, and it's just absolutely fascinating the way that that combines with, uh, I think it's, I think you pronounce it Sinatics, which is the, the sort of science of sound. Mm-hmm. Um and the way in which those mounds were constructed um, insofar as so that sound carried. I mean, these people knew an awful lot about, you know, standing waves and how to make waves work and stuff like that. And, Mm. you know, positioning of stones, not only so they're in the correct position for in Stonehenge's case and Avery's case, Mm. uh, the winter and summer solstice, you know, Um, but sound was an absolutely critical element i mean i think that's the one thing that we don't pay any i mean funnily enough it's been a working day which has been you know work that people have produced has been hampered by a a negligence towards sound it has yes you know and sound is one of those things that as visual people we we think is secondary almost really we we do we're we're, i mean of course uh, what what people won't know from this recording is that every week we're sat here for 10 minutes before we start trying yeah. to sort out sound problems. We don't worry about the visuals. As you can see, I've paid no attention at all. It looks uh, jolly nice. It looks nice, but it's pure yes. chance. If I move, move it that way, I've ruined the short bollocks over there. Well, it's but, like you've only got to, fo- you've got to photograph the Great Pyramids from, you know, the one angle, haven't you? Absolutely. Otherwise you see the shitty nappies and that's, stuff like that. That's yeah. it, yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that uh, sound is, is such an incredibly important thing. And there's a lovely line. Back to the, the, this lovely folk horror thing. There's a lovely line in one piece, which is, uh, it sticks with me, which is a woman with a, a look of shock, almost trauma on her face. And the line that she delivers is, oh God, you can hear the earth. And that's from Nigel Neal's Quatermass 4. Mm-hmm. 
which uh, wasn't filmed at Stonehenge, but they made a decent-ish replica, albeit out of polystyrene. Yes. Yeah, I, I yes. mean, I think we touched on this the other week, didn't we? Quite we did. I remember seeing that when I was a kid, and even the sight of... Um, Coronation Street, Brian Tilsley, was it? As a sort of a, as a soldier who throws his gun away and joins the hippies. Quentin, Chris Quentin? Chris Quentin, that's ringing a bell, yeah. That he's was that there. the character's name, Brian Tilsley, who worked at the garage? Was, it was, yeah. Got shot. I think I'm right. He's a, he's no, he a soldier he and he throws his, his gun away, doesn't he? And he joins and the walks hippies. Along, uh, walks along with Toya. That's right. Yeah, even that yeah. couldn't. I was quite scared of that at the time. I mean, to put things into context, there was a program that I, I've never heard of called Doctor Who, and I remember reading <laughs> this magazine based upon this show I've never heard of, and I remember seeing in it this shot of of the Cyberman walking down the steps of St Paul's, mm. and for some reason, you know, because they were all originally set in like the eighties, yes, those those eras. So I believe I've never seen it. Um, no. Um, I was kind of like, oh my God, this is only six years off. I'm, you know, it's weird how these things play on it because there's, there's the fear of things from the past, there's fear of things from the future. I mean, anything that's in some way absorbing the human being mm. is terrifying, be that sort of a future cybernetic thing being absorbed up in the uh, ringstone round or mm. um, in Children of the Stones, they become the stones, don't they? They do. That's uh, <clears throat> and it's a, it's a wonderfully scary moment uh, for what is a children's show. Um, what happens? Spoilers. If if anybody's not oh, seen, yes. you've had you've had since nineteen seventy six. I think that's long, quite enough. Don't quite you? long enough. You get this village, uh, and an astrophysicist moves to it, played by Ian Cuthbertson, being wonderful. Um, but he is some sort of druidic character, yeah. and he um, he's got a manor house which is built over some sort of sauce it's a it's a dish that's buried that's right isn't that wonderful it's what, wonderful what a great thing and when it aligns um when when the earth aligns with a black hole it produces this wave of energy down into the dish which disperses into the stones and if you are there at dinner watching this, you're taken over and you're basically made into, like I said before, this emotional, emotionless zombie sort of thing who says yeah. happy day a lot. Yes. And you're right, at the end, at the very end in the final episode, um, the other lead actor in there is uh, Gareth Thomas from Blake mm. Seven. Um, and he and his clever son, because you've got to have a clever child with it being in the 1970s. Uh, absolutely. Can't act, but he should be there. Well, of course. Yeah. And... They, they do something where they put the digital clock, which is a big ticky thing, of course. Uh, they put it forwards 30 seconds, so the alignment's not quite right, so they're not changed. Yeah. And that, and that breaks the circle, uh, the villagers who are stood outside by the stone circle like that. But then, suddenly they all start turning to stone. And yeah. the, other, the other juvenile lead in it is a 14-year-old uh, girl, and she's turns to Ron and then looks at her mum with this look of horror and she's screaming and the camera pans down and you can see she's half sewn. It's horrible. Yeah. I, I honestly remember it. I, I remember yeah. that. I remember, I just remember the, I think he slams on the brakes of his car because he thinks there's a woman stood in front of him and it's a stone in the road. That's the very start of the whole thing. Yeah. They're driving into Milbury, as they call it, and then suddenly, and you can see the stones going past as they drive yeah. uh, down the avenue. And then his son uh, just looks forward and shouts, Dad, look out, and slam the brakes on, and there's a woman stood there. Yeah. Like that. 
but they think it's a stone at first. Yeah. So the first shot you see is a stone, and then it's replaced by this woman, and then it says, chapter one, Into the Circle. Into the Circle, yes, that's yes. right. Well, I mean, wonderful. The, the great thing about these things now is that because, you know, they say, they always say they had no idea why they were built. They have no idea why they dragged this stone 70 miles. You know, in the case of Stonehenge, they dragged uh, the blue st stone from Wales, didn't Wales, they? Yeah. Across mountains and across water and stuff like that. And one thing that they're finding out now in it is that, stones were chosen for their magnetic properties because um it's all to do with the quartz content of the stone mm -hmm. so there's a really nice thing here yeah. insofar as i think it's pronounced synatics or synatics anyway it's this study of sound um and one of the theories now about it, and it's not just a theory because they're using quartz, tiny slithers of quartz glass they're using now as storage mediums. They're like new hard drives, right? Yeah. Based upon what they've observed with the, the, the magnetic properties of quartz. Um, so now they're making these, I think the car, I can't think what they're called. Anyway, I'll, someone will tell us, I'm sure. Mm. But the great thing about that is that they now one of the theories is that these stones were chosen as recording mediums. And if we could somehow press play on them, mm. we could decipher the information on us, which when you think about Nigel Neal again with the stone tape mm. is a kind of, you know, he was on it then, wasn't he? Well, and that's a, that's an interesting one because now of course you get people who work in parapsychology who very much go with the idea of what they call the stone tape theory. Right. And, but, it, I can't see an example of this predating Nigel Neal hypothesizing this. I think he maybe does it himself. He does it in, uh, there's a play called The Road, um, uh, which is a TV play, which has been wiped. And it's such a shame um, because this is set in, if memory serves, it's set in a medieval or Elizabethan little village. Um, yeah. And uh, the, the, the villages are being plagued by ghosts and the sounds of ghosts and horrific visions, uh, and they call in vicars and all sorts, but it turns out what they're being played by are ghosts of the future. And right. this, what they can see is a road being built in the late 1960s, and it's coming back to the past, um, which again, it's to do with disruption of the earth, it's to do yeah. with information, not in this case being re uh, retained, but being passed back somehow. Um, but I, I don't know, I mean, I'm not sure if there is any example of people believing in this sort of thing before Neil starts to pick up on it. And he uses it in, in Quatermass. He uses it in the road. He comes back to it quite a lot. And now it's yeah. accepted. I, I'm, I'm really not sure. Like I say, I know that they've got these little, um, I think they're called nano dots or something, these little pieces of quartz mm. and they can fit something like 360 terabytes on it and it's indestructible. Mm. So to all intents and purposes, they're creating a storage medium that, will never you can never destroy it um and so i think that the connection with standing stones and the connection with again i go back to this point that people are negligent of the importance of sound mm. because i think that sound is the uh, the key to understanding all those ancient sites i think it's the key to understanding a hell of a lot of things that we regard as mysterious to be quite honest with you hey we're getting very cosmic here for the show michelle's just lads um <laughs> no, I think, I think, but i think you're right because one of the things a very recent happy thing a happy memory for me has to have been when right back so long ago suddenly we were plunged into that first lockdown and but all of a sudden 
everything stopped. It's not like, I mean, apparently now there are still restrictions. You wouldn't really know it, would no. you? No. But when, when we did have that first lockdown, and it was all a bit exciting, and there were no planes, and there were no cars, and people were staying indoors. There was that fear yes. of the viruses. The changes. The changes, <laughs> yes. But the silence, the silence, yeah. which, uh, which, nothing. No industry, mm. nothing mechanical. Mm. That was that was beautiful. It didn't last that long, but it lasted a few weeks, and I thought that was a wonderful time. And similar to that dust cloud, um, didn't some volcano go off or something like that? Oh, in Iceland, yeah, yeah. and it stopped all the flights. And I, I would nobody can pronounce the name unless they're Icelandic. So. No, no. Um, I mean, I mean, it just shows you, and that again is the superstition. This this fear that we must keep Mother Nature sweet. Otherwise, something will happen. And that is embedded within our memory. That's why we've got so many flood, you know, they're called myths, but uh, why we've got so many flood stories in the world. And that's why, you know, after that tsunami hit India um, in, what was it, 2004 or something like 2002? The, the Boxing when, Day one. Yeah. yeah. When that washed back out in India, it uncovered sort of like massive temple structures that were believed mythic forever. I mean, mm. you know, um, Graham Hancock, if you've ever heard of Graham Hancock, he refers oh, yes. to us as a species with amnesia. Mm. And, and I think he's correct about that. But I think even though we don't retain a cognitive uh, record of what went on, we still fear things, you know? Um, I think so. But an interesting thing that, that you said, I mean, is that idea that the Earth will look after itself. Um, and of course, you've got the Gaia hypothesis, which basically says that, that the Earth is one great big living organism. And it uh, is. And and we're just little ants wandering the surface. And if we piss it off, it'll go, no. Well, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's an interesting one. You see, um, Edge of Darkness, if I could bring that to the fore here. Why ever Ed, not? Edge of Darkness, most wonderful. For me, that's, I think that's the best drama has ever been. Uh, in, uh, it's made on film, so I can't fully approve of it, because that's a bit modern. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, I, and if it had been made in Birmingham in 1972 and there were a lot of men around a boardroom shouting Patrick Weimark ideally in the lead, yeah. I would have been a lot happier. But nevertheless, obviously, wonderful nuclear thriller. Be? Absolutely. Wonderful nuclear thriller. But then it goes into nature. Um, absolutely stunning imagery and this terrifying use of the landscape with um, a, a mixture of the landscape and the modernity. I remember shots of helicopters going through valleys holding mm. these nuclear rods and things mm. like that. Absolutely just just a stunning sort of mixture of the two. It is, but, but it's always going to be overshadowed by that scene. Uh, yes. Isn't it? Un unfairly. Unfairly. The so, scene... I mean, you can you can explain the scene. It's dirty. No, no, no. It's cool. I wasn't trying to cork your juices, dear. No, I no. was just sort of agreeing with you and saying it's such a magnificent piece of work that is unfurly. Just oh, it's that thing where he kisses his daughter's dildo. It's like see, I, I see. I, I I've thought about that a lot. Not in. I bet you have. Not in. Not like that. <laughs> no, no. But well, there's the two things I love about Edge of Darkness. Uh, one thing that's in it, one thing that isn't. Right. So I do love that sequence where he's going round his daughter's room um, because he's, it's just after she's been shot mm. and the shooting of her, you know, that's BBC stunt work at its best when she just goes back through the air. But then he's walking around her room after she's been shot and the things that he picks up 
symbolize her perfectly. He's got, uh, I think there's a child's teddy. So there she is as the child. There is, and, and he clutches that close to be close to her. But then you've got the, the dildo, the vibrator, and he kisses that too and clutches it to him. And it's like you've got the both both the, the stages of life that, of his daughter. You've got her as a woman and you've got her as a child right there. And then he finds a gun and he, suddenly all shit kicks off. Mm. But I, I personally love that because it tells you that this is a man who's, who's loved this human being all her life. Doesn't just think of her as a child. He accepts that she was a woman. And I think that scene does a lot. But unfortunately, it is Bob Peck kissing a kissing a dildo. It is Bob Peck kissing a dildo. His daughter's dildo, no less. Which his is, daughter's is, is, But I think that that is what they were trying to get across as well. I do think mm. that that's what it's across. It's like, look, here's this child, my child, and I, you know, I reared her to adulthood and she's gone, mm. and, but it's a kind of recognition that mm. she did mature. Yeah, and, and I think it is that. I mean, but the BBC in the mid, well, not just the BBC, but in the mid-80s, we did some terrifying telly. We, I oh, mean, yeah. you know, threads being, you know, the, the sort of the big example. But do you remember the old men at the zoo? Baby. Do you not remember the old men? So the no, old no, men at I the do. zoo um, is kind of, it starts off, it's about London. And, it's, and I don't remember much about it. I must go back and rewatch it. But again, it's one of those things that's it's nice to exist in the hinterland, isn't it? That we don't yeah. quite remember. But what I like about this sort of, you know, this post-apocalyptic thing where the men who ran the zoo there's a, it's a lot i'm sure even as a child i got this and i'm sure that even now that now it'd make much more sense to me it's a it's a an almost i think i could be wrong because i've not seen it as an adult it's an almost orwellian comparison of bureaucracy with the the dominance hierarchy that exists within a zoo and stuff like right and mm-hmm. and after the nuclear war that happens in it the guys the bureaucrats at the zoo end up living in cages in the zoo it's quite terrifying i remember that they're all sort of you know shuffling out of their cages one morning where there's some guy there just injecting them all parallels with now and there's mm-hmm. just giving them this i suppose anti radiation sickness drugs or something like that but what i always like about it is the way that in my mind it's completely raveled up and complicated with one by one which is uh, (laughs) which is which is quite a different animal no pun intended very different you know and who's that uh that guy that sort of that that sort of hey you can't do that that irish james ellis james ellis who was sort of like you know the the sort of perennial 80s grumpy man um, mm. who was fantastic in everything? Who was the guy that he he was the sort of the cut price version? Who was the dearer version that you got? Who was the sort of he had a in really, one by one? No, the really good Irish actor. He was. I'll have to. I'll have to search engine him. Hang on. Right. right. No, not to do. No, that. I'm not. Am I? Damn it. No. Um, right. Sorry. Is um, that? Is that? Are you thinking of T. P. McKenna? No, I'm not. I, I, I do get. He sort of got black hair, greased right. back. Um, and he's in a film called No Retreat, No Surrender, or something about an Irish wedding in a pub in Liverpool, or No Surrender, it's called. And he's a brilliant actor, and he's got like a, a really good whistle on the way he says the letter S. Anyway, he was a sort of cut price version of him. Right, right, Google it, Google it. All right, then. Right, Google it. And okay. whilst you do that, I'll explain uh, the other thing that I love about Edge of Darkness, incidentally, is what didn't happen. Because at the end of it, um, Bob Peck's meant to have turned into a tree. That is the, the <laughs> end. 
I'm not joking. That's the original end and the idea that he goes back to the earth, but he becomes a tree. Um, but from what I understand, um, Bob Peck was very cross about this and didn't really want to film it. They have they have filmed it sort of. It's on the Blu-ray. Have you got the Blu-ray? I'm no, encu- no, no, I'm no. I'm going to encourage you. Oh, to so they it. actually filmed it? Oh, they filmed it. Yes, they did. You see, that's that's the sort of thing. It's like, um, it's oh, by the way, the actor was Ray McAnally. Oh, of course. Right. And James Ellis is in that film as well. So they, they went right, for yeah. both, didn't they? It's like, you know, you get them cheaper if you get the two. Um, <laughs> no Surrender, it's called. It's about a sort of Protestant and Catholic wedding in Ireland. And it obviously, right. uh, it's a Bleasdale thing. Um, um, what we talk about? So it turned into a tree. So what's that Ooh. film? Tales that Witness Madness were... Michael Jaston falls in love with a log. Have you seen that one? <laughs> now, are you sure this isn't a I, fever dream? I, <laughs> am I sure it's what? Not a fever dream. Not a fever dream. You've never seen <coughs> Tales That Witness Madness? I haven't, no. So you know you've got your sort of hammer, hammer horrors. Now, the interesting thing here is Hammer mm. never made portmanteau horrors, right? Everyone says, mm. oh, Hammer horrors, that, those four stories. No, 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 no. no. No, Hammer made horror films, very good horror films. And then with more or less the same actors, a company called Amicus, which was mm. uh, Milton Sabotsky and who's the other guy? They did the Dalek films. Yep. Um... Ah, well, we're nearly there. I'm not Googling that. So no. um, we've, we've used our one token per year. Um, anyway, so uh, Amicus, the company that they founded, they did the portmanteau horror, the four-story one. Yeah. Now, there was one other portmanteau story, horror film, made in 1972 or three, that wasn't Amicus and had four stories in it. And one of them's got this guy who gets this pay, uh, a mirror and he moves into this house and then he's like a, a cheap version of, oh, now here we go again. Um, who's the guy who plays the devil in Time Bandits? David Hem, not Hemmings. And welcome, we're on the Amnesia Express tonight. Hang on. Collins, it's not David Collins. No, he played Doctor Who in one of those big Finnish things, not that I've heard of Doctor Who. Anyway. The the devil chap did. The devil chap, you know, he zaps one of the dwarfs in Time Bandits. Well, is it not David Collins? No. David, uh, David. I know, I know. It'll come to us. David Bradley, David Bradley? No, No, No. he played Hartnell. Um, Ah. David... Don't know. Anyway, David, he's like a cheap... Everything in this this portmanteau film is like a cheap version. Right. Right. Okay. So um, you get people who are a bit like other people. Anyway, um, this uh, David dude who played the devil in Time Bandits, um, he buys a flat and in it there's a mirror, an old mirror. And every yeah. he's sort of in the front room and every night this mirror starts misting up. And no, no, I've got the wrong film there. I've got the wrong film. I've got the wrong film. <laughs> anyway, he's got this bloody painting on the wall of Uncle Albert, right? Right. And so he has to keep killing women. And then every night Uncle Albert comes a bit back, back to life or something. But this painting on the wall of Uncle, Uncle Albert, I'm not joking you. He's like this in one, right? This is while he's murdering a woman. He's like this, this painting. <laughs> okay. And then the next thing he brings the woman in, it's like, and he's like watching him do it. He keeps cutting back to the painting. And when he's killed the woman, it's like, <laughs> he's happy. And yeah. at the end, it's one of those things whereby he takes on existence. He lives because he's fed him, you know, and then moves out. It's not promising, I know. And it's not a very good film. And in it, Michael Jaston mm. falls in love with a log. 
But this has absolutely sold it to me as a film I, I must see. I, oh, you must see it. I can't believe you've not seen not, it. I've not seen it, no. Tales of Witness Madness. Look it up. 1972 right. or three. And so there are two of the films, and I can't remember the other two stories in it, but it was obvious, you know, a cash-in on mm. the portmanteau horror thing because mm. obviously you'd had, you know, so much success with Tales from the Crypt and uh, From Beyond the Grave, which is the belter. Mm. Uh, but they're all bloody good, aren't they? Yeah. Um, but I mean, these sort of occupy that. Do you have those memories of the Wicker Man being one of them? Do you have those mm. memories of bits of films that you saw late at night dozing off because you hadn't quite gone to I me? Mean, nights like this for me remind me of Sergeant Bilko being on because it was so hot you couldn't sleep. You'd have all the windows open. Bilko mm. would be on BBC Two, and you'd be, you know, you sort of like having your cheese on toast because it was, you know, it wasn't time for bed yet because it was too bloody hot. Yeah. But I remember the end scene of The Wicker Man like really well, in the same way that I remember uh, Granada repeated very late at night in the late 70s, it must have been The Prisoner. And I remember the penny farthing bit by bit coming together. Do you get what I mean? And I remember there's a film with Peter Finch where he ends up with a dead baby that he chucks chucks on a a garden fire in a shoebox. No, you say you're learning some of you. I am. Uh, so these are crazy, <laughs> crazy for turns. Michael Jaston falling in love with a log. Yeah. Uh, Peter Finch burning the corpse of a baby. You see, mm. this is they don't make them like that anymore, Paul. They do. They but do. my point being, again, it's this hinterland of half remembered stuff. Mm. You know yeah. that we sort of and and the advent of the video recorder, I think, has killed all that. It, it has. Well, it, listen I, to this. I, Step into the eighties. The, the, <laughs> the advent of the video. The advent of the video recorder, dear. I yeah. mean, we've got new shit now, haven't we? I keep forgetting. Well, we have. But uh, but right, we we do indeed have new shit. But for me, I mean, it goes back to again the fact that VHS, like we said before, it was incredibly expensive. Yes. So you you had to be careful what you would record, and it didn't matter. You would wipe it. A- over eventually you always wiped the things that of course that that weren't repeated and a a huge regret i have is i 1986 um i remember i had a vhs and i thought i'm going to record news round because it was a news round special half an hour um and it was news round covering live the takeoff of the challenger space shuttle Right. Half hour program with Challenger due to take off 15 minutes into it. And of course, we all know what happened to Challenger. Woof, up it goes. Um, and on that occasion, John Craven's news round broke the news because, of course, we didn't have a 24 hour news service. So they actually got the breaking news story on news round. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching this like, like that. And I recorded it. And then I wiped it because I thought, well, it doesn't matter. The BBC wiped it too. 1986. Damn it. And that was wiped, which is just unbelievable. I know. And, and, and in a similar vein, um, I think I'm right in saying it was series five of Only Fools and Horses. I think the first full one with Albert in, another Uncle mm. Albert, but not one that made David Hemmings. Wasn't it his name? No, that weren't him. Somewhat like that. The fellow who looked like him. Uh, we're on the Alzheimer's Express, if you can. Again, now you've taken me back to that now. now um, but no. when Uncle Albert joined it, but the, that series five must have been the sort of middle ground between them going from the old format to the new. And the episodes mm. were 35 minutes, right? Mm. All of them were 35 minutes. It was Sunday night that they went out. And I taped them all. And uh-huh. I 
long gone. You know, I'm, well, I only chucked them out. You know, I'm like Thames with that story you told me yesterday. I only yes. chucked them out. I only chucked it out about 10 years ago thinking, oh, they're out on DVD now. But they're all 30-minute versions. And I can mm. still, when I watch them, I can see it fade. And I know the bits that they chopped out. Yeah. Because on the repeats later in the year, they were, chopped, they were trimmed down to half an hour. Mm. But I'm sure, I mean, you'd think they'd have that somewhere. But it's never come out. You'd think they have, but then again, I mean, you do recently because um, one of the channels that uh, I think it's drama, uh, it's just uh, drama, isn't it? Um, have been reshowing EastEnders um, from the beginning and they're going along quite nicely. And then, okay, let's get episode 97 off the shelf. Oh, <laughs> we've, we've lost an episode of EastEnders from 1986, wiped, gone. And it's just when they are now, and this is the thing. Video is secure. There's a security in that. This big, lovely object on the shelf. We can see the spine when we're in the BBC yeah, archive. Yeah. We love a spine. We do. Um, but of course, then you've got the um, technology moves on. So now all of these lovely old two-inch videotapes are being copied onto a digital format. And it is so easy for one not to get copied. And then you go, yes, we've copied that batch. Get rid. And that's yes. what happened here. Similarly. Um, with Granada, when they were digitising their archive, um, and there was a music show, which was uh, Lift Off with Aisha. Um, I don't remember that. That's, uh, it ran for a hundred and odd episodes. We, you wouldn't know it now, because they were all taken down to be digitised, and the wrong labels put on them. Oh, we've done that lot. Get Oh, gone. Um, oh, man. Amazing performances on there. From This is glam rock. That we're talking about. Oh, so is that the era you're discussing? That's the oh, era. Oh man, that's heartbreaking. Gone, all of it gone. The same with, I think, uh, the Georgian House, which was a mid seventies kids serial, which was to do with time travel in Bristol. Yeah, well, that's uh, gone. Um, two episodes didn't get copied across. Oh no, no, I tell a lie. Three episodes exist out of seven, but only one of them is in the original broadcast condition. The is other that the two. Where they put the hand on the thing and. And you can hear the boy coming, mm. and they go back in time. Yeah, uh, three episodes exist. Uh, the rest of it gone, and this oh. is all in our lifetimes. I, I know. I, I can I know. accept wiping before I was born for some reason, but I don't like the idea of things not being around. It feels like they should be because I'm not that old. Well, the stuff that concerned. you've heard of that's been wiped in the last mm. fifteen years. Mm. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, mm. but with EastEnders, there's surely someone will have an offer, one of the cast members or something. Well, I think that's what they've uh, ended up with because it was it was re-shown by UK Gold. Um, right. But we're talking a good long time ago. So they do have... There is an episode 97 on YouTube. Somebody's uploaded, but it's got the UK Gold dog down in the corner and all that sort of thing. That There isn't a clean copy anymore, certainly. That's gone. Which this is, is the thing. I mean, so much. I mean, one of the great things is with Steptoe and Son that they all exist. Thanks to the writers just chucking the, the engineer a few quid and go, you know, run us a cu couple of copies off, would you, fella? Yeah. And even, um, I think it, they were in the possession of Alan, no, Ray Galton, weren't they, in his garage and he forgot he had them. Yeah, they were. And they, they were on a really early format. Yeah, Shabadden. That's it, yeah. Yeah, the, the engineer run them off. Mm. I mean, there is... There's always rumours about colour copies of that those existing. Um, but it's like there's not even any chroma dots, is there, with the, the Shabadan thing? Because to me, the chroma dot thing is like black magic. That's unbelievable. 
absolutely is. For anyone who doesn't know about that, that's where you get a black and white film that's made um, of uh, a colour TV programme because it used to be the case that other countries we could sell to didn't have uh, videotape yet. They broadcast from film. So we'd copy a lovely colour, Steptoe and Son, onto black and white film. Um, and that would be sent out there. But they didn't turn the colour down mm. completely when making the film. Yeah. So all these little tiny microdots are all over the picture and they can clump them together and reassemble them and suddenly you're putting the yeah. colour You reinterpret the colour signal. Stunning. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I, I, I think that one of the main drivers for the sending them, what, these 16 mil prints are they? Are 8 mil? I, no, it won't 16 be 8 mil. 16, 16 mil. mil prints is the different TV standards across the world as well, isn't there? So, uh, yeah. So if you're sending film, film will play. Um, and so, yes, they filmed a television monitor screen with the colour signal not turned down. So the film actually ca captured the chroma signal, didn't it? Yeah, Which right. with software can be reinterpreted. And it is. I mean, those dad's armies are the best example I've seen of that. Absolutely amazing. Well, they've done it now as well, of course. Well, they've done it to the to the episodes of that programme you've not heard of, Doctor no, Who. Um, right. They've yes. done it to the Are You Being Served pilot? That's been done. And what does that look like? Because that looked NTSC to me when they did that. Um, it's been cleaned up since again. Right. And it looks good. But when they really go to town on it, it's it's just like watching the original. It's, well, it's stunning. I, I can't... Every time I hear just the words, are you being served, I smile because... It was one of those things, being a Catholic household, we didn't watch much BBC, but obviously on a Sunday night, you didn't want to go to bed. You didn't want to do your own work. Mm. So it's kind of like you'd sit and, oh, look, you know, I won't watch Spitting Image Nan. We'll watch That's Life. Um, <laughs> yes. Which, so you'd watch that and then, are you being served? I seem mm. to, did they repeat it? Or was it always on after they couldn't have been? It was a, it's got to have been a 7 p.m. job, hasn't it? I mean, it was a big deal. It was. I, th I, think, I think for some reason I'm thinking Tuesdays at 7 or something like that, or Tuesdays at I 8. I thought it was that last of the summer wine slot, but I'm probably wrong. I don't think so. I think it was a weekday one, I, I think. Right. Um, but now, Are You Being Served is that wonderful example of the gang show, isn't it? And for me, the joy of Are You Being Served, I think, is always the closing uh, credits, where everyone gets a close-up, and you can see them just... Wendy Richard just looking, catches the camera, and then starts acting as though she's not, you yeah. know, that sort of thing. But it was uh, so absolutely gigantically successful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's because hard to believe that people don't know what it is now because it was fucking, it was a phenomenon. It was. And 14 million viewers average. I mean, that's wow, extraordinary man. for something that is basically, you know, it's a, well, it's a, it's a sitcom. It's a gang show, but... There's such a familiarity, and of course we don't make sitcom now. Bit of a dirty word. Um, yes. Which but we is... loved all those actors as well, didn't we? Yes. I mean, Frank Thornton was a national treasure. Yeah. You know, Wendy Richards was. Mm. Um, Trevor Baxter. Bannister. 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 All these people, and absolutely the one who was like, you know, the sort of mother goddess of all, that was John Inman. John Inman. He was and absolutely beloved. And of course, when I the lovely thing with Are You Being Served is, well, firstly, John Inman would never say that Mr. Humphreys was gay, ever. No. He thought that you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about that sort of thing with the characters. But when they did that pilot episode of Are You Being Served, it was made, I think, in 71. And then it sat on a shelf and nothing happened with it. It just sat on a shelf, not scheduled for broadcast or anything. But then 
we get the Olympics disaster in Munich, if you recall. Well, um, neither well, of us do. We weren't neither bombed, of us do. But, but we're aware of it, of course. We are, of course, aware of it. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the schedule is out the window, and there's no Olympic Games to be shown. So it's like, oh Christ, what have we got? Fill, fill the schedule. We've got this on the shelf. Shove that on. No goes, way. Are you being served? And huge ratings. And after almost a year, then you get the phone call. Yes, we would like to order a full series, please. That's um, amazing. But with only one rule, and the one rule given was quote you've got to lose the puff right and the writers refused good it, the, the the legendary answer was if the puff goes we go <laughs> it would have been plop without him it would he, have been. he was the well i mean whoever said that i'm sure um you know what inman was the first professional i ever went on stage with wow when i was I don't know. I would have been about nine or something right. like that. Um, and I was in the I was in the Cubs, and we went to see a pantomime. And I think the pantomime was at the then Neptune Theatre, now the Epstein uh, Theatre, but in Liverpool. Um, and it was starring John Inman as Mother Goose. And there's a point where he called for, "Does anybody want to join me for this part here?" And I'm like, "Yes." Oh, I. Straight up, walking down the aisle. I didn't wait to be pointed at and called up. I just, yes, down we go, on stage. And I was on stage, me and a few other kids, who were very unprofessional, I thought. But oh, I was yes. on, it was terrible. But I was Crane on stage. Here. Exactly. But on Common. stage with Inman for about 10 minutes, during which a routine happened, which we were part of, without any knowledge of what was going to happen. But Inman was such a showman that he guided us so we'd be in the right place on stage as a group when we needed to be for a particular sound wow. effect. Or I remember at one point I was singled out and I went down stage left and suddenly there was a noise like I was st stepping in cow shit to react to and stuff like that. While he's trotting about, basically he's improvising. And improvising. Imp imp improvising. Yes. And, and directing children he's never met during a live show. That was... That blew my mind. But he was like the the governor with Panto, wasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. I remember him being interviewed about it on TV AM or something when I was a kid. And he, he was just like, I mean, one of the greatest writers of Panto in this country was the guy who played, um, what's his name? Rafe in Dear John, wasn't he? The, he was in Please, Sir, as well. Peter Denny. Peter Yes, Peter Denyer. Peter, Peter Denyer. Ah, and that's just popped into my head. The, the poor man's Satan in Time Bandits. David Warner. David Warner. David Warner. Yes. That's right. But yeah, I mean, those things, those gigantic, colossal things that they've gone dad's army being another great example I mean, but we still remember dad's army there's some reason why that's i suppose it's considered less offensive because i think that no pun intended but inman's character was the butt of many jokes wasn't he yes um in that regard and i think that i mean to be honest with you it's just get you know piss off it's funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. It's a great show. And I never for once felt that Inman was being oppressed. I never for once felt that that character, he was always came out on top, whatever it was. He rode all that 
bullshit. You know what? You know what really shows it here is when you watch that pilot episode, and we come to the you have been watching at yeah. the end. Trevor Bannister is top because he was the star of the show. It was his vehicle, really. It was written around him, and I think it goes something like Trevor Bannister, um, Frank Thornton, Molly Sugden, Wendy Richard, John Inman. And then I think Arthur Arthur Brow is below him. But as the series progresses, of course, Inman moves up the ranking mm. until eventually it is very much starring John Inman with. That's, that's not a character that was oppressive. I think, you know what it was for me as well, which is interesting, um, is that for me, because I was brought up in a very, you know, quite strict Christian ideals and things like that, and difference was bad. Or difference mm. was scurry. Superstition. And, yeah. But here we had John Inman, who wasn't scurry yeah. at all. You had John Inman, who was um, a funny man, who, who didn't scare me, wasn't worrying for me. And I think that made me probably much more accepting, seeing that. Yes, the portrayal is not something that you would see now. But the portrayal didn't make me think... Or in some way, that's a negative thing. The portrayal for me made no it a way. positive thing. I'll tell you something that I find many times more offensive mm. is the way that they speak to the character of Olive in On the Buses. Mm. It is... It's shocking. The, yes. the way that they speak to her as a woman in that is just like... I didn't notice it. As, I only saw the movies as a kid, obviously. Mm. But it is jaw-droppingly offensive. The way they speak to her. And that isn't funny. I mean, I, I'm sure it was funny. Mind you, you watch on the buses and it's like, you know, Jack, uh, what's his name? Reg Varney's character. It is Jack. It's Stan. 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 You know, and Stan, there's one episode because his mum's gone out. He's got her eye in his own shirt and everyone's pissing the pants. Oh, look, a man eyeing in his shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I think that on the buses seems to get a free pass for a lot of stuff whereby, no, are you being served more or less being erased, hasn't it? And, and I think that not for the same reason, but, you know, in our household, the, the similar hero was Larry Grayson. Mm. Because Larry Grayson, you watch Larry Grayson now, I defy anybody to disagree with me and i would argue with them you know naked arm wrestling if needed Absolutely. um that larry grayson could pop up on the comedy circuit now and still still be just as funny you watch his act now and it is literally he's just incredible i mean mm. as he always said didn't he it was an overnight success that took 30 years or something. Yeah. <laughs> so he had that <clears throat> the, he'd done the graft yes and he was an expert those generation i mean to to take on that show as he did and put from his, bruce that alone no. that alone is is incredible it absolutely you know, when you is. see him doing the dances and that, you, you know we all know the clips he's just it's almost as if it's like i'm doing my thing here mm. there's a game show sort of going on and i'll interact with it as and when i need to yeah but, but you're I'll, watching I'll, me Exactly, you're watching me, and I, I probably haven't prepared enough the game show elements, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> He's wonderful. I love him, and and I and the thing is, I knew women like Larry Grayson. Mm. I grew up around women like that. Yeah, you know, really funny women. Yes, and he sort of he seemed to embody that. 
Well, it's that strong matriarch, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, from, from the North, we're used to it, that you've got the strong matriarch and you've got the sense of humour, but that mother hen at the centre. And, yeah, he, he did. He absolutely yeah. did. I'd, I'd agree with you there. Yeah, he was fantastic. And, and, you know, again, these people that you don't hear of anymore. I mean, I keep trying to shoe on uh, Rex Jameson's Mrs. Shufflewick in. And, and, and as we're sort of running low on time now, I'm not going to go on. But we will have a, a decent conversation about Mrs. Shufflewick, you know. And Mrs. Shufflewick, again, is, is a massive um, iconic figure that people don't particularly know about. I think I'm right in saying that the first uh, gay pub in the country was in Camden, the mother black cap. Is that right? Cause uh, no, I know you, s- right. yeah, you see it. Uh, and it's not the actual pub in Withnail and I, Withnail don't and I yeah. but it, yeah. it's not the, cause there was the mother black cap and the mother red cap or something on Camden. I can't remember. Anyway, every lunchtime, every Saturday lunchtime for like decades, Rex Jameson did his Mrs. Shufflewick, you know, um, and it's like that. I went to the butchers the other day and I, I saw, I was like, uh, how much for the lamb? And he says, oh, uh, seven pounds a pound, missus. Oh, for fucking hell. And he says, well, it is English, dear. I want to eat it. Don't fucking talk to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there's all these Britain. And, and someone thought in the early 80s to put three cameras on him and captured the act. And it's on yes. YouTube. You know, and Rex Jameson was just this sad character, you know, who um, Mrs. Shufflewick, he used to tour the working men's clubs up north and the people up here just thought it was a little old woman. Mm. They just thought it was a rude little old woman, <laughs> you know, and, and I do encourage anybody who's made it this far mm. to go and, and you, if you've not seen it, I go, haven't, I haven't go on you. In fact, I'm going to put a link in the description. Do it. Um, someone filmed that and there's one lovely bit because it's a lunchtime and and this pub ended up being full of straight people because it's like this guy is brilliant this act is incredible so doing the act like and someone walks behind him with a full tray of beers like going back to the table you know what i mean it's just that evening and carries on but it's the Mm. split second timing with the it's it's just wonderful anyway i'll shut up now but um we've drifted quite a bit the away from the summer sauces, but the summer sauces should be a time for fun and japes of all kinds. It should and rambling on about about a load of old ink, not connected at all. Norms. Nice things. Nice things. That is the aim of the game. Well, Always dear, nice things. we started off um, in um, Neolithic Britain. Yes, and uh, we've uh... ended up in Grace Brothers Department Store. Yes, and I think that's fine. Those are the parameters I'm happy with. I'm yes. happy to go from Avebury being constructed to Grace Brothers Series Six, not anything after. So, but that's the what happens after that? Does Arthur English die? Trevor Bannister leaves and is replaced by Mike various... Berry. Oh, there's a couple before him as well. Alfie Bass does a series as well where he's uh, I fighting. Love Alfie Bass. I love, love him. Alfie. He, he does his best, but um, right. yeah. And uh, I, we'll end on this one, shall we? The, on, there's um, the voice of Mr. Kipling. Who's that? He was the guy who played Friar Tuck, wasn't he, in the 50s? He's, he's also, of course, from Are You Being Served? That's right, yes. Now, however, I am going to allow myself a Google here. Okay, that's make, your token use. This is my token here. So let me just put this in here. So I'm going to put Mr. I can see the guy. He had a big sort of fat-lined head, didn't he? I always remember he had, like, Peter Butterworth hair. 
Here we, yes, it, it got him. Right, so. Um, ooh. Oh. Let's come up with a different person. Oh no! Well, I don't want to end. Uh, no, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not. Once you that. find, once you find him, I'll I'll give the the viewers and the listeners at home a cake related fact. If you go do. on, yes. Okay, so w- w- you know where the Great Fire of London started, didn't you? Don't you? Pudding Lane, yes. Pudding Lane. Do you know where it ended? No. Pie Corner. Really? That is a true fact. That is a wonderful fact. That is a wonderful fact from Pudding Lane to Pie Corner. That, that could be my autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very good title, dear. But here we are. I've nearly got it. Right, so the actor mm. is called James Hayter. Right. H-A-Y-T-E-R. Yes. And James Hayter came into Are You Being Served after Arthur Brough or Brow, um, right, the cast after he died, so they dropped James Hater in, and he is exactly the he's the same uh, character really. They just give him the lines, but he does start to make him as make it his own. Now I can see here, yes, he was also Friar Tuck, so we're, we're in the right area. Yeah, yeah. James Hater was also the voice uh, the voiceover for Mister Kipling's extremely yes. good cakes. Yes, and then he's in Are You Being Served? Right, and the makers of Mr. Kipling's cakes are a bit concerned by this because they think, well, our cakes are rather lovely and are you being served is rather rude. It's coarse. It's coarse. So they phone up James Hazer and say, James, how about if you don't do are you being served and we'll pay you the salary you would have got for doing are you being served and you just do our voiceovers instead? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'll do that then. Exceedingly good deal. <laughs> and he went off and... <laughs> Lived out in Spain and was Mr. Kipling twice a year for 30 seconds. Well, why not? Absolutely Good, good right. on the fella. Good Absolutely. on the fella. I mean, I know it would have been fun. Mm. It was fun to watch, but I bet it was graft, <laughs> that show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rehearsals. That's that, That's like rehearsing a full farce a week, isn't it? Uh, and then, I often wonder, though, what it must be like to be in that position that someone like Thornton is in or anybody who's carrying a show like that. Yeah, one of the great understated unsung heroes, Jeffrey Palmer. Wonderful. How much revolves around this this rock that Mm. is Jeffrey Palmer? And it's like uh, you don't even notice him. He's that good. That's it. He is so good. You don't notice him when he appears in that program that neither of us know the name of. When he he drops dead, and uh, where he yes train station. That's right, he does that. That's one I've particularly not seen. Not seen that one at all. (laughs) Then he's in there two years later in The Mutants, which you must watch at some point. And and then he's there in 2007 uh, on the Christmas Day special Voyage of the Damned with David Tennant and Kylie Minogue. There he is again. The man is... What a guy. He turns up in a lovely episode of Ed Reardon's Week. Do you know Ed Reardon's Week? I do, I love it. Right, well, he, he, he... he ends up, Ed Reardon's got this little gig where he's going to, I think, write a piece on this guy who did a thing called Parsley Junction or Parsley Sidings, you know, like... Parsley a, Sidings. You know, it's like a joke version of a uh, Oliver Postgate thing. So he Parsley goes out, Sidings was a, was a Dad's Army spin-off on the radio. Oh, so that was real, was it? That so was it's, real, it's, yeah. So it's Parsley Junction then. in Right. This. And okay. he goes out there, and so before he goes, he's in the pub, and he's like, oh, you're not going out to uh, interview that old commie, are you? And he's like, what do you mean? Tommy's like, 
Oh, yeah, that whole thing was like a communist utopia. You had the, the station guard and you had the chap running the place. And anyway, so he's like, oh, whatever, having a pint with this guy. And he gets out there into the countryside to his house and he starts talking about Parsley uh, Junction. And he's like, oh, yes, well, it was a sort of allegory on a communist utopia. And <laughs> it's just a really, really great episode of a really good show. Ed Reardon's Week. It's another Excellent nice series. thing. It's a lovely yeah. thing. It's a very lovely thing. There's a series of it on currently. It's just uh, started again last ah, week as well. So. Elgar the Cat. Elgar the Cat, who's getting Elgar ever older. But cat. tune into that on BBC Radio 4, which I will always happily say. Well, dear, I think that that's, I think they've got the money's worth out of us for a summer solstice. I think they have, haven't they? But of course, if anybody uh, wants to get in contact with us, we, are, we, we have dipped our toes into modernity and we're both on yes. Twitter, aren't we? Yes. So um, if you go onto Twitter, um, I could be found there at P. Carmichael V.O. I think you're and Paul Carmichael V.O. Do you know what? I'm looking at it now and I thought I was Paul, but it says oh. here at Peacock. I may have changed it. Captain Peacock. Yes. Uh, so I'm at Paul Carmichael VO and you are at Michael, at Michael Libsley. Just the same thing. I'm, I'm on the same thing on everything. And I will put links to social media in the description. You're quite right, Paul, to, to mention so that I will do that. We'll, we'll do I, that and we'll, we'll drop a few links to a few little goodies on YouTube. Yes, well. that's a great idea. We should be doing that and we will. We're getting better at this, aren't we? Lady we are getting Pauline. better. It's only, only number four, isn't it? So. It is, dear. Yes. And it's not even four well. weeks. Because no. this is a this is a mezzanine, it isn't is. it? It is. Yes. That means uh, we've got to record another one in about two days. You know. Yes. yes. We'll run out of nice things at this rate. Oh, there's no, no, there's no. There's end. no end to it. No end to nice things. Not not when winter starts to draw in. Oh yes, winter draws on, dear. <laughs> um, right. Well, have a, a blessed solstice, everybody at home, and Absolutely. same to you, dear Paul. And to you, my dear. Yes, have a lovely one, and we'll be back very soon. Very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nice Things, The Antidote to Modern Living was presented by Sir Michael Livesley and Lady Paul Carmichael. The music was written by Michael Livesley, and the flutes were played by Andy Frizzell and John No Jokes Please Lewis. Nice Things is a Guilty Dog production. Nice Things.